am the chairperson for the um, speaker meetings this month, and I carefully curated thought, thought into this, and um, Matt was an easy, easy decision for me because um, I remember in, in early sobriety that... That's so funny, we're not... <laughs> um, that in early sobriety that I thought I would never laugh again. And um, I was miserable and suicidal at times. And then um, I do remember uh, the first time I ever laughed in an AA meeting, and it was from one of Matt's shares. And so ever since then, he's always been a real inspiration in terms of... Um, I look. I admire his sobriety and his journey, and his success, and what he's made out of himself as a sober human being. So, um, without further ado, here's Matt. <laughs> uh, my name is Matt. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, shit. All right. I'm a little bit nervous. Um, but I'm also excited to be able to be in a position in my life where I can actually sit up here and talk to you guys about my past and present and, you know, things that I look forward to in the future. Um, I was going to comb my hair tonight, <laughs> but then I realized no one would recognize me, so, <laughs> so I wore the hat again. <laughs> um, all right, well, I'll just kind of start. Um, I'm going to do this a little bit different. Hope, hopefully it kind of works out. I think it will. Um, so just super basic stuff. I was born, well, my sobriety date September 15th, 2011. And uh, I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've come from pretty standard, normal parents. They're still married. They were uh, intellectuals, professors. My dad got a job at UT when I was one year old, and we came to Austin in 1975. And so I grew up here, spent almost my entire life here. Um, I guess the first time I ever, or looking back, the first time I realized that I was a degenerate <laughs> was probably like around five or six years old. I used to, I had this buddy and we rode BMX bikes around and he showed me that the Jeeps and the cars that would be parked outside had little chrome caps on their, the little air things on their wheels, like their chrome wheels. And he stole a set and put them on his bike. And I was like, oh shit, I want a pair of those, you know? So anyway, I did that for the first time and it was like the biggest rush, you know? I was just a little kid and it was like sneaking and stealing and running and like just excitement and I had never really like experienced doing something wrong that felt so right <laughs> and so like within probably two weeks total addict in me like no one in the neighborhood had chrome caps on their cars anymore dice you know and all that shit and I had them stacked up in my room they were like I had this massive collection it was pretty sweet <laughs> but but the whole the whole reason I did that like looking back is that it was something that was excitement and it was something that instantly changed the way I felt and so it wasn't so much about that item it was the the rush and um, you know I was pretty much a normal kid other than like being a kleptomaniac, um, did good in school, um, you know, did sports, kind of just normal shit. And then um, 
probably like my uh, sixth grade year middle school I started skateboarding hanging out with like the cool kids a little bit and was introduced to alcohol and then quickly uh, marijuana and other drugs and so I remember the first night I was drinking and I was really kind of awkward I was in like honors and tag classes and I didn't fit in with those kids and I didn't fit really in with the cool kids and I just you know, I was kind of in between, and that night it was like I was part of something. And obviously, I liked the effect that alcohol had on me, but uh, it was more like the camaraderie and having like these people I related to. And there was chicks too, which I thought was awesome. But um, anyway, so you know, we would steal alcohol and uh, kind of, you know, people would leave their garage doors open at the time and we would like grab, you know, whatever out of the fridge and go to the golf course and get wasted and then I'd sneak back into my house and that eventually progressed pretty quickly into drugs and I was, I believed all the bullshit like dare stuff that like weed killed brain cells and acid would, if you took it three times you're, uh, I forget what the term was, but basically crazy. And I had a buddy of mine who had taken acid like 20 times, and he seemed pretty normal. So I was still worried about the weed thing, but I ended up taking acid at a ministry concert. <laughs> that was pretty dope. <laughs> but um, anyway, I had a blast. And real shortly after that, I started like doing all kinds of drugs because I realized like I wasn't crazy and um, the, the, the scare tax tactics, I kind of saw through them. And so, you know, it progressed and it progressed and progressed and I got, oh, one, one thing that is kind of a big part of my story, I was always an entrepreneur and as soon as I started doing drugs, I started selling drugs. And I'm sorry for talking about drugs and all that, but that's my story, so luckily this is Bolden. Um, bottom line, you know, it went hand in hand um, using and selling drugs and so, I was thinking like, you know, what, what uh, stories could I tell you guys as far as what it was like? And I got all kinds of fucked up crazy shit I could tell you guys. Um, but, you know, like, <laughs> I once stole my parents' car, like would sneak it out all the time and uh, took too much acid and ended up catching the, like, the car on fire. The, uh, my parents didn't smoke and we were like going downtown smoking. And, <laughs> put the cigarettes out in the ashtray, which was filled with like trash because they didn't smoke. And we come out at 4 a.m. and the car's filled with smoke and we open it and like the dashboard's melted <laughs> and the radio is like frowning. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm like, fuck. And, and so, and my dad, he worked at UT, he would get up early, you know, and so I'm like, I gotta get the car back, and I, ran, and I bought some Ozium, <laughs> and just like used the whole can and kind of wiped down the stuff, oh and then like hung out in my room. Oh, the, the fucked up part is that <laughs> when, when I was pulling up, I had this technique of turning off the car and basically just rolling into the driveway, and then I would run to my window and jump in. So I turn off the car, and right, and this is like right around six o'clock, my dad is coming out to get the paper. And so I like do this, and just kind of like roll past my dad, and luckily he's kind of out of it all the time. And so he didn't see me, and he went in, and so I flipped around, parked, and then I just freaked out, you know, and then, of course, 
as soon as he got in the car, he was like, Matt, did you take the car and smoke in it? And I was like, no, yeah. <laughs> and, and what that little thing taught me, because he, he knew I had, obviously. Uh, my sister was like only, I think, eight. <laughs> so she hadn't done it. Um, but anyway, like what I learned from that experience is that if I stood my ground enough, I could like manipulate anybody, even my dad, and like I could lie through my teeth and just convince something, somebody of something that I did, but make them think that I didn't do it. And so that was kind of a bad little lesson at that point. Um, I also have stories like I broke into a church high on mushrooms one time to find God. And that was pretty awkward, but <laughs> um, I'll spare you guys that one. And so what I want to tell, and this is kind of why this is a little bit different, I'm going to tell the story of my last day using um, to kind of explain my life, you know. And the reason is there's really no better story that explains the insanity, chaos, unmanageability, and downright absurdity <laughs> of my life, you know, as the last day. Um, and so to kind of give you a little backstory, I was living in an Oxford house. I was shooting up every day. I was the treasurer of the Oxford house, so I had access to the bank account. Um, you know, so a lot of fucked up shit. Um, the only other guy living there was also using, and um, I would like, because they kind of knew, like, the people that would come in from Oxford knew we were not, like, outstanding sober members of society, and they would pop drug tests on us all the time. And I would literally, I had a bag, a, like a Ziploc bag of water and soy sauce taped to my leg, like, 24-7, ready for if they'd sprang a drug test on me. So, and that was, like, totally normal to me, like, I had a, a backpack, I was on probation so long, like urine stored in a backpack, like, so that I could always pass UAs and stuff. And it just never dawned on me, like, most people don't do that. <laughs> and so anyway, um, on September 14th, 2011, um, I had, about a week before I'd gone to OSAR and gone through the funding process, and OSAR had been really good to me many times, and let me into treatment, and uh, I had not been long enough where they could approve me, but it's always a process, you know, and so I had gotten approved, but then it was waiting for the bed to open up at AR, and, you know, I, was, I felt ready. I was just miserable. Everything was falling apart. I was on the run. I had absconded from felony probation for the fourth time. Um, cops were looking for me. My probation officer knew was where I was staying. And I was just trying to get into treatment so that really I didn't have to detox cold turkey in jail. And um, the, that morning at 8 o'clock, my phone rings, and it's AR, and they tell me that they've got a bed opening up on the 15th and to be ready. And I was just, like, super excited. And I was also dope sick, you know. And so I couldn't sleep at all. I couldn't go back to bed. I was just, like, you know, nervous energy. And, but realizing, like, I'm going to have to just make it one more day. So I go and I sit on the couch. And, like, all my friends at the time or the people that were in my life, you know, they would get up at 11 or 12. And so it was, like, a waiting process. And I don't know exactly what time it was. I was watching TV, and I'm just wearing basketball shorts. So no shoes, no shirt, looked like shit. And I hear boom, 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 boom. And I, like, look out the window, and I see Travis County Sheriff's Patch. 
And I know they're there for me because there's only two people living there. And the door they were knocking on was normally locked. It had like a double door. And I'm just like frozen, not knowing what to do. And the door swings open. I hear it. So I realized that the guy who I lived with had gone out that way that morning and hadn't locked the door. So I just sprang. I ran and I dove between a bed and a wall like they wouldn't find me there. <laughs> and I hear them come in and I immediately hear like doors opening and I look and luckily there was a sliding glass door in this room and I just run and I know that when I go out this door I'm going to be tackled, you know, but I'm going to at least give it a shot. And so I run and I open the door and I see the cop cars and I just book to the right and no one saw me. And I run, and I run, and I hadn't ran for a long time. I mean, I was emaciated, just really bad physical fitness. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, you know, that adrenaline kicks in. I'm, like, leaping fences and oh, rolling and fence after fence and, like, bleeding from my elbows and my knees. And I get behind this shed, and I can literally hear my heart beating from outside of my chest. Like, it was loud, and I was like, man, they're going to hear this shit. <laughs> I was really tweaking out. And uh, so I knew that somebody was going to have seen me hopping all these fences. One of the neighbors was there, so they were going to find me, and I knew I had to make a move. And so I real carefully, like, creep up to the street that was parallel to mine, and I just scan it looking for cops and looking for somebody from the outside of their house that looked like they would be potentially cool. And I see a beat-up-ass old Camaro, <laughs> and I'm like, that's the house. And I run, and I knock on the door not knowing what to expect, and the fucking door opens, and this dude who's like 6'5", also not wearing a shirt, but with a f <laughs> fucking giant mullet and a ponytail and a baby under his arm. Oh, my God. And he's like all freaked out. I'm like, man, I'm running from the cops. Can I use your phone? <laughs> and I shit you not. Okay, well, let me just add one thing. While I'm telling these st this my life story, this is like God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. You know, like obviously this is all self-will shit. But there was like some divine intervention this day because this motherfucker looks out and he looks both ways and he says, come in. And he, he like he lets me use the phone right away. I call my mom, <laughs> of course, <laughs> and she didn't answer. And then he's like freaking out. He's like, my wife's going to be here soon. Dude, you got to go. And like then his wife did show up and I tried calling my mom again. No answer. And I just had to get out of there because I didn't want them calling the cops. And I said, and I don't know why I chose this place, but I said, can you take me to Red Lobster? <laughs> and he drove me to fucking Red Lobster, which it was the dumbest idea because it was literally a block and a half from my house on the same street. And like I could see when he was pulling up all the shit going on in my house. And I run into Red Lobster and I say, I was in a car accident. I need to use the phone. And they're like, they kind of push it to me, and I call, and my mom answers. And I go, Mom, I really need you to come through for me. I'll be by the dumpster. <laughs> and so I ran, and I hid between the two dumpsters. And like 30 minutes later, my mom pulls up, and she got me. So then it's like, all right, I can't go back. You know, I didn't have my phone. Um, she takes me to my house, and I'm like, Mom, I got approved for AR, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, 
So anyway, she's just like had enough. Poor thing. And and I'll tell you like, well I'll tell that a little bit later. Um, so she had, she was used to this kind of shit. Um, and did want to see me get into treatment, so I think that's why she came and got me. They had had enough um, for a long time, but um, anyway, so I go to their house, and um, I have like old clothes there and stuff, and I was super dope sick by this time, and um, I call my buddy, he answers, he's like, I can be there in about an hour, and I knew that the cops, the next place they were gonna come would be my parents' house, because that's like on the list. And so I take a shower, and I put on dress slacks, a nice button-down shirt, grab my backpack, and put on some nice, like, dress shoes. And that was my, like, image, dude. I was, I would, like, you know, this chameleon or whatever. Like, I was fooling anybody. I mean, I looked like shit, but I would throw on the clothes to, like, look like a student or something. And because my thing at this time was um, shoplifting textbooks from all of the different textbooks. The reason you guys pay $150 for a textbook is because of me. <laughs> um, sorry. Uh, um, but no, I, I, I literally, like, it was so bad, I would have to sneak into the textbook stores and not be seen because their security staff knew what I did. And then I would have to obviously sneak out. And so anyway, you know, I'm, I'm like hiding in my parents' backyard. My mom's like, hey, I think your friend's here. So I run. Mom, see you tomorrow. And because uh, she was going to take me to treatment. And so we drive down to the co-op, which was like really easy. If you could get into the co-op without being seen um, and then get downstairs, like I just had this technique and I could be in and out. And so, and plus it's my last day and I want to go out hard, you know, I like load this bag, this book bag, like. 50 pounds of textbooks and I walk up and I think man this is awesome no one saw me and I there's a back uh, alleyway exit if you know the co-op and I go around and standing like this at the door is a short Mexican chick she was kind of my nemesis she knew who I was and hated that I would go in there stealing and she's like mm -mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I you know knowing that when I go through those doors Security's waiting for me. I fucking tighten that bag and I just ran right by her out the door. And mind you, I had already used up all my energy. So I'm running down the alleyway. The security staff is coming out. I'm like trying, my body's trying to run faster than my legs are going. So I'm slowly like leaning. And then all of a sudden just boom, the weight of the books. And I like eat shit right in front of about 10 workers that are fixing the alley. And they're all like, oh, man, and helping me up. And then they start screaming, he's stealing. And then I'm like, boom, and I bust out of there. I take the bag, and I throw it in between two dumpsters. And I, my buddy's waiting in front of the co-op. So I run and go to the fucking, of all places, the Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> And because I was like, LaFon was gone, <laughs> you know? this might be good. And literally, the, the fear in their eyes when I come in, my hands are totally bleeding. I'm bleeding through my dress clothes. And I look at them and I say, I was, <laughs> I was late for the bus. <laughs> and I was running and I fell. Can I borrow your phone? And they're like, again, like slide the phone to me. And I felt bad, like, 
there was blood smeared all over their counter, and they're just in shell shock, and I call, and I'm like, hey, dude, I'm at the Scientology place, come scoop me, and he comes, I run, I jump in, and he's like, where are we going? And I go, the alley. <laughs> and so we pull up, and it's like this thing where the books are in between me and the car and the security staff talking to the workers, and I was like, I had to get them. You know, oh my God. and so I jump out, and they see me, and it's like this face to face, and we're both running at each other. And luckily, the books were a little bit closer, and I ran, grabbed the bag, and I fucking just bolted to the car, threw the bag in, and dived in the car, and fucking we drove off down to San Marcos and sold the books. And so the the reason, and that was that was, I mean, obviously I got high the rest of that day or whatever, but that was the last day for me <laughs> and you know you always hear if you can't remember your last day you're in big trouble <laughs> well luckily for me that was my last day and um, the reason I just wanted to tell it is it sums everything up that honestly that day is fucked up and it was crazy the only thing really weird about that day was that I got away from the cops basically mm -hmm. twice uh -huh. that was the only strange part and so you know, I was fucking miserable. I was done. My body couldn't take it anymore. My my veins were gone. My health was gone. My family didn't want anything to do with me. Um, but I managed to get into AR bright and early that morning on the 15th. And I really, really did feel like this was it. Um, so from here, I'll give you just a brief history. Man, I've been to so many fucking treatment centers, um, sober livings, methadone, suboxone. Um, there was some, I forget what it was called, long-acting method. Lamb, thank you. <laughs> Just a high five. <laughs> um, anyway, like, you know, I tried all this shit, but bottom line, all the times I had gone to treatment, except really the time before I had relapsed this time, um, I wanted my life to be different, but I didn't want to be sober. I wanted to manipulate the people around me to think that I was trying to make a change so that they would continue enabling me, basically. Mm -hmm. um, I was a fucking, I was really good at manipulating and being dishonest, and all of those character defects were honed, and I would, you know, I mean, I had a lot of practice doing them. And so I was fucking tired. I had been sober before this little four and a half month relapse. I'd been sober for 16 months and I loved it. My life was good. A lot of really awesome shit was happening. But at the end of the day, I really wasn't working a true program. I wasn't being honest. I was selling drugs um, because that's what I knew. I mean, I was comfortable doing that. I had come out of the SMART program, which is basically, you know, people dodging uh, you know, prison. And so it's a lot of people that don't really want to be sober and you got a lot of time to plot and plan how you're going to come up when you get out of this place. <laughs> and, um, but I really did want to be sober. And the thing was, I didn't want to do any of the, I didn't want to, there wasn't really any character defect I really wanted to give up, you know? <laughs> and I thought that that would be okay. And you know, there wasn't, obviously. I, I relapsed. I went right back to where I was. You know, I had quite a bit of money in the bank when I relapsed. Within three months, I was doing crimes to stay high every day. Um, I, 
I would sit in the treatment center and I, I was selling my packs of cigarettes to people. I was about two, two miles um, from one of my dope dealers' house. I had a total plan. I was going to hop the window and go out stacking money, selling my cigarettes. And something just kept telling me, Matt, just chill out, do it tomorrow, do it tomorrow. You know, like, don't do it now and it will get better. It will get better. And then mm -hmm. one day I woke up and I actually was probably three weeks in, I, I felt better. And it was the first day that I wasn't like, just mentally just freaking out, being in there wanting to bail. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I started getting a little bit more, more you know, clarity. And I realized it was pretty simple what I hadn't done right. You know, I did want to be sober and I knew I was powerless and my life was unmanageable. But I had no idea what it meant to really turn my will over um, I was still 100% self-will, and um, it, it led me exactly back to where I had been. And so I, I hear a lot about people saying, I got sober because I wanted to have an amazing life. I wanted to live life to the fullest. Honestly, that wasn't where I was at. Where I was at is I didn't want to fucking wake up dope sick and be in total fear overwhelmed by the knowledge that I got to go fuck the world over as soon as I'm throwing up. And that was my spot. So if I was willing to do this and it would just take that away, that was a win for me. So I was starting at a pretty, pretty low jump off spot. I had very little expectations. I did know this worked though. And I knew that it did amazing things. It had worked for me um, somewhat, you know, but I wasn't really working it. So I knew that if I focused on the stuff I hadn't done correctly, um, that things could work out. And um, one, one thing about my parents is um, the best thing my parents ever did for me, they sent me to so many treatment centers and, you know, they were, they're smart people and they've always can like see a problem and attack it and fix it and solve it. And my sister and I, are the unsolvable problems, you know? And eventually my dad did a little Al-Anon and stuff, and at some point they just realized like, hey, you know, we love you, um, but we also love ourselves, and the damage you're doing to everybody around you is just too much. We're letting you go. And, you know, I had, I had, had a lot of, um, Things come and go, you know, over the years. Um, it was constantly lose everything, regain, lose everything. And um, that was the first thing I had lost that I actually said, you know what, that's fucked up. I don't like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And that, for me, was a big motivator. And that's one of the biggest factors in me staying sober that 16 months was that they pressed charges against me. And, you know, I would pawn a bunch of their shit and get it out so it wasn't stealing to me. But, mm -hmm. I mean, I was fucking them over <laughs> and um so you know i um they, they they were kind of happy i was in treatment and stuff but it was like look you're on your own mm -hmm. you know you got to do this your own and so i i started formulating this plan there was an electrician in uh ar at the time and it was during the time of the bastrop fires mm -hmm. And I thought, he kept saying, Matt, dude, be an electrician with me. We'd go out there and kill it. You know, you can be a journeyman and then a master, and it's a good career. And it actually sounded good. I was like, you know what? That's a normal job. I don't have to be a drug dealer. I can be an electrician. So <laughs> this is sitting in treatment. You know, I got it all figured out. I'm going to come out, and I'm going to be an electrician. 
So, like I told you kind of the last day, my first day out is super, super important. Okay, so, I, you know, I'm in there and I'm going over all this stuff, what I did wrong. And when they would talk about statistics, only two of you guys are going to stay sober. I was like, one of those is me, so only one of you guys is staying sober. <laughs> and, um, but, but I still, like, I didn't have any clue what it meant to, like, you know, try to turn your will over. I had no practice at that. Very little, little spots and stuff. And so... When I, when I got out, they let me out. And, of course, you're excited. You know, you want to eat a real meal. And I go to this sober living. And my buddy who I had met in treatment, he was from uh, College Station, so he didn't know Austin. He had gotten out three days earlier and gone to that same sober living. And so I pull up, and he's leaving to go walk to a job interview. And... I'm like, David, what's up? I'm out, you know? And he's like, I'm going to a job interview. And he said, do you know, um, I forget what the, where's Western Trails? What street is that? Fort, Fort View. Fort View. He said, do you know where Fort View is? And I was like, I think I do. I think there's an AA meeting on it. And um, so he was going to, coincidentally, a job interview right next to Western Trails. And so I was just excited to be out. He wasn't from Austin. I said, we can walk there. And so we lived right, right near there, La Casa. And so... <laughs> Um, we, we walked there, and it was the weirdest thing because the guy, the manager, and he's like, I'm David, I'm here to do an interview. He, the manager like just totally ignores him and walks by him and comes to me and gives me this weird look. And he's like, who are you? And I go, my name's Matt. And he goes, do you want a job? And I go, no. I'm going to be an electrician. <laughs> and I go, why? And he goes, well, coincidentally, I grew up with three deals, two brothers and a cousin, and they were all really good salespeople. It was a sales job. Network, incoming calls. And I'm like, no, man, I'm going to take three buses every morning for three hours to get to Bell Valley where I'll hitchhike into Bastrop and then do that on the way home. That was my fucking great idea. <laughs> you know? and, and it sounded like a really good idea, you know, an honorable job and all that. But I wasn't really thinking it through. And here for the first time. Um, I went outside, David went in for the interview, and I was just completely overwhelmed by this feeling and heard it in my head and in my soul, like, you're fucking up, dude. Turn around and go take that job. That dude just offered you a job because of your last name. It's three or four blocks away from where you live instead of this monstrous bus ride. And let's be honest, you've never <laughs> done anything with electrical wiring. <laughs> and so... I turned around and I went in there and I said, hey man, I thought about it. I'd like to apply. And of course he was like, well, you got to come back tomorrow now. <laughs> and, but I did. And I went back and um, I applied. And, you know, I had a lot of shit on my record. I've been arrested well over 30 times. Um, I, I was on probation for felonies. It was all deferred. Um, but... You know, you're doing sales, credit, people's credit card information. And um, they're, they run the background check. Of course, I passed the UA. And I'm, like, nervous about the background check. But after, like, training, we, we had been in training for almost two weeks, and it was about to end. And I was killing it. Like, every training call that they had put me on, I had sold it. Like, every single one. And no one else had sold anything. And I was, I was doing really good. 
And then I, I, the, the like HR lady said, Matt, I need to talk to you. And I go outside with her and she says, hey, tell me about your record. And I, I was just super honest with her. I said, look, I got like 35 days sober, or 40 days <coughs> sober, whatever it was. Um, I've done a lot of wrong things in my life. I'm trying to make a difference, you know. I understand if you have to let me go. Turns out, the guy that started this company, started this company when he came out of prison for 16 years, federal prison, for selling weed. And he has a soft spot in his heart for fuck-ups. And he, he, they were like, well, we're going to have to let you go, but Lynn said he wants to keep you. And anyway, that little thing was like the greatest thing for me. I went, and um, and this is not ego shit, this is just factual shit. The uh, best closing percentage they had ever had was like 22%, and they, there was this legendary guy, Bob Allen, and he was so good he could work remote. And I'm thinking like this super handsome, like sales genius, and finally Bob Allen comes in one day, and he's just like 500 pound crack smoker. <laughs> And the reason he worked remote is they didn't want him at the place. <laughs> and I was like, that's Bob on Alabama. I was like, dude, I got this. <laughs> and so I literally, my life for, you know, a year was just doing this shit, waking up, meditating, praying, just being so thankful that I had a job. I, could, I didn't have a car or anything, but I had shoes. I could walk to, you know, they had little contests I was winning, and I was making money, and I was paying my own bills. My parents weren't having to pay for this stuff. And um, I just, I dedicated myself, obviously, to this, number one. Um, but I would show up to work every single day. I would work extra hours. They would have contests where you can make quite a bit of extra money. I would do all of that. And after one year, um, the top closing percentage had been 22%. My closing percentage was 55%. And they, they <laughs> you know, heard training videos <laughs> where they, they play my calls or whatever. <laughs> I forgot about that. Um, but here's the crazy thing. So the reason I, I'm telling this is, like, I wasn't doing any of this shit. None of the – this was – totally outside of me. All I did was fucking take appropriate action every single day. And I always like to talk about like staring at my feet and just taking baby steps through life and just doing it over and over and repeat and doing the next right thing. And then all of a sudden one day I looked up and things were starting to change drastically. Um, there was a guy that was there. He only came in for a few months. He was a consultant. And basically what he did, every morning he'd call and he'd kind of just bounce ideas off of me or ask what I thought could be improved between like the sales force and management to make the company more successful. And anyway, he left and this is one of those God things. This is totally random and like coincidence, but it's not coincidence. Um, after I'd been there about a year, we had lost the contract with DirecTV and I had this guy call in. And he said, I want six accounts, basically, for DirecTV, and that was a lot of money for me, and we couldn't sell it. So I was like, that guy who had come in to do consulting work, I was like, that guy can do it. And I pick up the phone and I call him on my lunch, and he's like, Matt Deal, I cannot believe I'm on the phone with you. I was just thinking about how to get a hold of you. And literally the day before, he had taken a job to be a manager for an alarm company called Vivint, which does door-to-door -door alarm sales which is 
horrifying to me. Um, but anyway, he had gotten a job offer, and he was like, I can have you on a plane tomorrow to Utah, and you can see this. And I'm like, dude, I don't want to do door-to-door. That sounds really crazy. I'm really rude to people that come to my door. And he, he just said, Matt, follow me for like half a day and just see what it's like. And so I did. I followed him, and this dude sucked. And he's, the three people we talked to, he sold all three of them. One failed credit, the other two got it, and he made like 1500 bucks. And I was like, sign me up. <laughs> and so I literally, the next day I'm in fucking Utah, and it's like, there's mountains, and it's beautiful, and I've got this opportunity to be a door-to-door salesman. And it sounded just random and crazy, but I had seen him do it, and I was like, no, I, I'm going to give it a shot. And I did, and I committed to it, and I got to travel. So here's another thing. As a heroin addict, you're tethered to the, wherever you live. Like, I had about a 30-mile rope, you know, <laughs> tied around me. I couldn't go on trips anymore. I couldn't, you know, I mean, my methadone clinics wouldn't even give me take-homes because I had failed so many UAs. So I literally had this, like, little bubble I lived in. And then just to have a job where, yeah, it was like fucking Kentucky and shit, but it was still, I was, you know, able to like live and I was free. I was starting to experience like true freedom. Um, my probation had finished and I was able to do all this cool stuff and I learned like how to do this and I actually got pretty good at it. And um, the, the craziest things like, you know, there's these opportunities when we, stop fighting the world around us and trying to manipulate and control everybody and start swimming with the flow, Mm. it's like the whole world opened up. And where I, my jumping off point was like, I just don't want my life to suck. (laughs) You know, that I'm cool with that. I started from experience and doing this shit the right way, like learning and believing without a shadow of a doubt that there was great opportunity for all of us, you know? that anything was possible, anything that we wanted to do and put our minds to, we could do as long as we were living by the spiritual principles of AA. You know, honesty, humility, thinking of other people ahead of ourselves, not trying to be pricks, you know. (laughs) And so anyway, you know, it was like one opportunity after another. After my second year at Bent, I'd done really well, and I had this, like, floodgate of, like, job offers, and um, I was like picking through them and I'm, I started realizing like I thought paid a lot, but there was a lot of money in alarm systems and um, I had learned how to do it. And so I switched companies and um, it was a two year deal. I worked with this company. I basically ran the central Texas offices for um, the second largest alarm company in, in the U.S. Um, here locally and, and learned a lot. You know, I had to manage people. I had people that relied on me. I had technicians that would not eat because everybody was on commission if my team didn't go out and produce. And so it was this process of like realizing like, hey, if I actually do shit and I work hard and I live this way, that cool things start happening, you know? And um, to, to bring it up to speed, as of today, I own an alarm company. And it's been in business almost 14 months. We're number one on Yelp. (laughs) Um, I'm a fucking thief. (laughs) 
Eric and I were talking about this. Like, it's like all that shit is now powerful tools at my disposal. You know, like everything I went through is something that I can use to help other people. And I really like value my ability to go and actually do right by my customers, be honest with them. They think they need something that they really don't tell them, even though it hurts us as a company, it helps them as a person. And just those little things, it's like I apply this shit to everything. And it's fucking crazy. So I, I'm pretty much you're done. You're good. Right? No, you're good. Okay. So my life's fucking amazing. Um, it's bizarro world. Everything I thought I wanted, you know, back in the day, like, that's not the shit I want. Um, I want serenity. I want peace. I want stability. I want schedule. <laughs> you know, like, good food. <laughs> um Okay, so that, that's pretty much it, but I do want to say something. So there's a lot of people I know in this room, a lot of people that I've met over the years through AA. There's also some really important people to me that I knew when I was getting fucked up. And we have, like our crew has a death toll that's astronomical for if you take any slice of the population, you know. And I could easily, like reminisce on that and get hung up on that and get really down in the dumps on that. But I got like two survivors in front of me <laughs> that are fucking alive and they're living and they're doing it. And that is like everything to me. I come to these meetings like obviously to be a service and to hear what it's still like. But it, there's a greedy part of me that I get pure joy and pleasure watching other people succeed. Mm -hmm. And when I see people, you know, that are doing it, fucking Nick Bianco from Akron, Ohio, this motherfucker, he's up there in Akron, like, doing shit, like, getting fucking Narcane in the cops' cars and saving lives, and he just happened to be in town, and, dude, thank you for showing up. Um, it's just, it's awesome, man, this community, these people, um, you... It's like, dude, I feed off of that shit, and I thank you guys. I mean, I really do. I'm super grateful I got to bore you with the details of my life, even though if it was only two days. <laughs> but, um, yeah, thanks.